Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. All right, so I'm going to ask you all a small favor um, that you stand up with me as we read from God's Word together from the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in uh, chapter 21, starting in verse 33. These are the words of God. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Let's pray real quick. God, we ask you this morning that you would give us ears to hear, to hear you speak to us. We ask that you would renew our hearts, giving us a desire to obey you. And we ask that you would give us the grace and strength to do what you ask of this. Do what you ask of us. We ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, have a seat. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, so we've been going through the, the parables of Jesus. It's a series we're going to be working through all summer long. And it's, um, these are like short poignant stories that Jesus used as a tool for teaching. And before we dive into this one, um, in Matthew's gospel, I just want to say a word or two on the importance of stories. I know that storytelling is like, is very fashionable. It's very vogue right now. It's like the moth radio hour on NPR and like storytelling slams are like quickly replacing slam poetry at coffee shops but more than a fashion and more than what's a current trend. There's something that's much more important to stories. In fact, the, the medium of story, it goes, it goes to the heart of the Christian faith. At the core of, of, of what Christians believe about God, we find, in the scriptures, we find this God who's narrating and directing a story in history. 
And that's important. It's not in some mythical fairyland. It's in actual history. God in Scripture is revealed as a storyteller, a wordsmith, the God who reveals himself through words and language, through narrative, and using story to portray human history as a drama. And it's a drama that has all of the, the kind of basic ingredients of a, of a, a story, of a, of a novel. It has an introduction. It has a plot that unfolds, that takes turns, that rises in tension, that has cliffhangers, that has a whole slew and cast of characters, and that has a climax and a conclusion. It's in this grand narrative that all of our personal stories, all of our personal histories that seem maybe disconnected and at times incoherent, this is where they all tie together in this grand story that God is narrating. In this shared history, we learn to relate to one another and to our God. And it shouldn't be a surprise that when God shows up in the flesh and and writes himself into the script, so to speak, that we find him telling stories. Part of the power of stories, and, and Shannon has alluded to this, is that they cause us to let our guard down in a way that that just lecturing to someone and just giving a speech or information to someone doesn't. Stories can create an impression. I'm sure most of y'all have, have, you've read maybe one of your favorite books, one of your favorite novels, and you remember a scene in that book You can't quote the lines. You don't know the words, but you remember how it made you feel. And that scene sticks with you. That's the power of story. It creates an impression in us long after the telling stops. They they haunt us. And I I dare say that they, they teach us something even if we don't really care to learn at all. They're kind of, uh, kind of undercover teachers, you know? And so in this parable, in Matthew's gospel, here's the background. Here's the, here's the, the backdrop of this parable. Jesus is being questioned by religious and cultural leaders of his people. So him and his disciples, they have just come into Jerusalem, which is the the spiritual heart and the national center of this this people, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. And And they were just in the temple. And they go to the the temple, which is, once again, it's the heart of, of national identity. And they go into the temple 
and they drive everybody out. They seize control of it. And they throw at everyone who's selling stuff, and they drive people out, and they take control, and they, they attack what's at the center of, of this, this nation's spiritual identity. And so the leaders of the people, the cultural and political and religious elites, the priests, the elders, the scribes, they demand to know of Jesus, who do you think you are? Where do you get off? What gives you the right to do this? They ask him, they say, in chapter 20, they say, by what authority do you do these things? And this is, this is the genius right here. Instead of getting into like a long-winded, detailed, technical, religious, theological dialogue about Jesus' authority, he tells them some stories, which is brilliant if you're trying to teach somebody something and they ain't trying to hear it. Okay? Are you all with me so far? Okay, good. So in verse 33, he starts it up. He says, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to the tenants. And he went into another country. In verse 33, Jesus, he starts the story of a master who planted a vineyard. Y'all might see a recurring theme. Last week, they were talking about workers in a vineyard. And the week before, we were talking about agricultural themes, about growing, about bearing fruit, about fertility, right? About things that grow and produce. When Jesus begins talking about a master who planted a vineyard, he's talking about the national history and the spiritual history of Israel. He's talking about the shared common history of the Jewish people and everyone knows it. All of his listeners know that. At least they, they should know it. You've got the, the, the religious authorities who served in the temple. You've got like kind of the theological authorities who were steeped in the scriptures and the law and the prophets and the Psalms. And they've all heard this image before. They've heard the, the metaphor of the people of Israel as a vine planted by God in a vineyard. It shows up again and again and again throughout the Old Testament. And it's, it was a stock image that the prophets used um, actually to rebuke God's people in their unfaithfulness. And so Jesus is telling the national story. He's telling a familiar story. But he's going to tell it with a twist. Verse 34, he says, When the season for fruit drew near... He sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. The owner sends his servant looking for fruit. Because what's a vineyard for if it doesn't produce? Just to say, hey, you know I own a vineyard. Like that will gain credibility in some circles. But it doesn't make much sense if you actually want something to produce. If you actually want something to grow. And so he sends his servants looking for fruit. And I want to just really quick, I just want to share with you a very similar parable that the prophet Isaiah told 
in, um, in chapter 5 in his book, The prophet Isaiah says, let me sing a song. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was, was there for me to do in my, for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? I'm going to skip down one verse, and it says that, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Now here you have one of the messengers that God sent to his people. And he's, he's talking about the discrepancy between what God was looking for, what God was hoping to find, and what, what he actually saw. And the fact, Jesus is echoing the story. In fact, it should, be, it should be ringing in people's ears right now. When they're, when they're listening to him tell the story, it should be, you know, this echo, like, I've heard that story before. I know that story. I've heard that a lot growing up. And so he continues on. In verse 35, he said, The tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Verse 35 describes how the tenants responded when the owner sent servants looking for what was reasonable, right? It was reasonable that the owner should look for fruit in a vineyard. It's exactly what you would expect to find. What you wouldn't expect is your servants to get jumped and beat down and murdered. It's the tenants who are acting outrageous, in their, in their reje rejection and treatment of the servants, it's like they're rejecting the owner as well. And in verse 36, we would expect that the master of the house would send some troops to put things to right. But we find something different. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to him. We would expect the master to lay down the law, to bring in force. But he sends other servants, even more than the first. And if you put yourself in the place of the people listening, their imagination is running wild. If you're listening well, you're outraged. That's messed up. That's really, really messed up. And you're wondering, too, what kind, of, what kind of master is this? What kind of owner does this type of thing? The rejection that the servants are facing, they make the most hostile and violent neighborhood in America look 
welcoming by comparison. And it's crazy because people are probably thinking, they're like, what, what did that guy expect? What did he expect would happen? That people are just going to like, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Surely now he's going to take vengeance. Now he's going to lay down the law. He's not going to stand for this injustice any longer. And yet, up to this point in the story, Jesus is narrating the national and spiritual history of Israel in a manner that's familiar to them and well-known. It's well-known. In fact, it's memorialized in the scriptures that God has sent messengers. God has sent prophets to his people again and again, warning them of their sins, calling them back, calling on them to return, to change their ways, and warning them of the disaster that, that comes from rejecting God. And it goes, without, it goes without saying that when you talk like that, that message was not any more popular then than it is today. And so the prophets, they were scorned. They were ridiculed. They were thrown into pits, thrown into lion's dens, beaten, arrested, killed. And so far, this is the standard account of the history of, of, of God's people, of the Jewish nation. This is the Old Testament prophets in a nutshell. And this, this is where the plot twists. This is where people's expectations are blown away. We would expect an army, a crushing show of force. We would expect that the master would make an example of them. That's why the next verse is so outrageous. Verse 37, he says, Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. Finally. So Jesus is retelling this familiar story, the well-known story. And um, talks about, yeah, I'm sorry. So he tells this familiar story, and this is where he twists it. This is where the plot takes an unexpected turn. Jesus is putting himself at the center of the story. He's the climax of the owner's sending. Finally, he sent his son. At long last, he sent his son. They have to respect him. They've, they've got to listen to him. And as Jesus, he's, as, as he's sending himself as the center of the story, not just another messenger, not just another prophet, but the son, the heir, as he's placing himself in the center and declaring himself, I'm the climax. I'm the way the story culminates. He's also declaring that the master is a, a father who's patient and 
and, and slow to anger and long-suffering and gracious. And it's, it's, it would be astounding to, for people to think that a master of, of a house could even act like this. It's almost obscene. What kind of master acts like this? They don't. You'd send your son alone and unarmed to people you know are going to be hostile? One, um, one author that I was reading as I'm, as I'm studying the story, you know, which is, is typically called the parable of the wicked tenants, which is understandable, you know, because the tenants act super wicked. But this guy who he lived in the Middle East for like 40 years. He, he taught in the Middle East. He knows that culture. He says it should be renamed the parable of the noble owner. And he says there's no word in English that captures the conduct and the character of this, this master, this owner. So... Jesus shows himself. He he declares, I'm at the center of the story. I'm the climax of the story. And he declares, he's like the father, the the master of this vineyard, the Lord of the house, is is a father who's patient and gracious and, and he's willing to suffer enormous indignity at a great cost to himself to have reconciliation. In verses 38 and 39, when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. The tenants see the son and they probably assume that this is the heir and the only reason that he would come is because the owner is dead. He's coming to claim what's his. If we kill him, then the vineyard is ours. This isn't ethical, but in that culture, it would have it stood. They had squatter's rights or whatever. If you could, three or four years, if you could you know, establish that you had, you had lived there and, and, and no, one, no one tried to take it from you, no one claimed that it, was, it didn't belong to you, then it was yours. So they're probably thinking... This is it. This is our shot. We're taking over. These guys are like ISIS. I mean, they, they might even make ISIS look soft. And verse 40, this is, this is the genius of story. This is like what, myth, indirection. You know, I read, when you're trying to get someone you're trying to string them along. You're trying to teach them something, and they've got their guard up. This is where the story just, this is where the punch is. This is the sucker punch that you weren't expecting. Verse 40, Jesus, um, Jesus asks, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? What do you think he's going to do? What would you do in that situation? And the people listening, they're getting white hot. Their sense of injustice is aroused. 
that I imagine they're like, they're like Liam Neeson in the movie Taken. <laughs> Serious. Imagine that. I'm going to kill every last one of you. Right? They murdered his son. And they, they say it. Um, verse 41, they say, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death. That's what the crowd says. And he'll let the vineyard out to other tenants. So the crowd answers, how would you respond? And they say, he's going to wreck shop. He's going to destroy that place. And then Jesus starts to quote from the Old Testament. 42, he says, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. See, Jesus is playing the role of a prophet. And part of the job description of a prophet is to like, you're bringing charges against a guilty party. And Jesus is like, in this case, it's, the nation, and specifically the, the, the religious and spiritual and cultural leaders of that nation. He's like a prosecuting attorney. And when he's, when he's quoting from the Old Testament, he's like calling witnesses to testify. He quotes from the Psalms. He quotes from Isaiah. He quotes from Daniel. He's calling witnesses to testify. I know some of y'all can relate to this because I know some of y'all have been in court. I'm not the only one. I know, I know some of y'all have been served papers. He's bringing charges like a prosecuting attorney. He's calling on these witnesses to bring to light the sins of the people, the sins of the nations. And he's saying to them, the very one whom you rejected, that's exactly who you need. That's the one whom God is sending to you, and you're rejecting him. And then he tells him the verdict. He spells out the consequences of this rejection. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And those guys, they understand. Let it never be said that you, we, we can't understand what Jesus was really getting at. It's all mysterious and it's all open to interpretation. They understood, plain as day, he's talking about them. They know what he's talking about. They get the point. And their reaction is not one of remorse. It's not one of shame. It's not one of self-examination. They're plotting revenge. How can they arrest him? Imagine that. That you would, that Jesus would live in a world where when you testify to the sins of the nation, people would try to arrest you. Imagine that. Now I want to, I want to try and reflect on this and draw some application, but I just want to say two things. Um, this is where the parable ends. But this is not where the story ends, all right? You can't take a parable found in the gospel and isolate it from the rest of the gospel, 
right? The parable is a story within a larger story. The story that God is narrating in and through Jesus, it continues. Jesus goes on. He calls people out. He calls out the sins of his generation by name. And he tells them the consequences for rejecting him. And he mourns for them. He laments them. In, in chapter 22, he, he goes on. He, he grieves. And he talks about how he wants to gather these people. He wants to be a refuge for them. He wants to protect them. And he laments the fact that they won't have it. And he goes to the cross. And he dies to achieve that reconciliation so that forgiveness and reconciliation is not just a nice idea in a story, but it's a fact of reality. And he rises from the dead to show that him who you rejected, God has chosen. That he's the one. And you didn't see it. I want to reflect on, on two things. Um, first, what, what should we make of the fact that Jesus openly confronted religious, cultural leaders of his day. And second, and I think they're related, what does it mean, what does it mean that the kingdom is given to a people producing its fruits? And uh, let me uh, make a short confession. The reason why I even wanted to preach this parable, why I picked this parable, to be honest, is because I have a recurring concern, a fear, an anxiety, whatever, is that the church, not the church in general, specifically this church, is losing its capacity to speak unpopular truth. And that with that, there's a diminishing capacity to make and to form disciples that bear fruit and that have a credible witness in the world and in a culture that is rejecting Jesus. Now, I would submit to you that this parable about a vineyard is not about, it's not just about Palestinian Judaism in the first century. The vineyard is not just about Israel or just about the church, but that the story that God is telling is a picture of our common humanity. It's common in the fact that it starts in the very beginning with a God who planted not just a vineyard, but a garden. And the story that, that follows is all about the trouble that ensues in that garden, in the world, when the tenants reject the owner and the master. The tenants, which is us, were the ones that were given dominion. We were the ones that were called to, to take care of the garden and make it flourish. And when we, the tenants, when we reject the message of the owner, 
when we imagine that the owner is dead and that the garden can be ours and we don't have to answer to no one, we see that this story is not just about Pharisees and scribes. This is about our culture too. Even as Jesus confronts his own nation and its leaders and the powerful and those with influence, he still comes. He still comes unarmed. He still comes looking for repentance. Even though he's condemning and publicly naming out loud the sins of his generation, he's still grieving and lamenting the fate of this great city, longing to gather the very ones that are planning his death. He's, he's, he's calling them out for their rejection, and he's longing to embrace them and, and to reconcile them. And this is what we see. This is consistent in the Gospels. This is what we see revealed through the cross. That in Jesus' body, through his death, we see the intersection of the God the Father's holy and righteous and justified anger and outrage against sin and, and his costly long-suffering, patient, gracious love that's willing to suffer great indignity in order that the world might be reconciled through him. We have to be a people formed by that type of love. I think that's what it means to be a gospel-centered church. That means we don't get to stand back and point fingers and say, it's all them. It's those wicked sinners out there. We don't get to do that. It's all their fault. We don't get to say that. But it also doesn't mean we get to sit back and be quiet and say nothing and, and be timid and quiet. I don't... I don't think it doesn't suffice to, for us to act like everything's okay, for us to be afraid to speak. And um, it's, just a, it's just an ongoing concern of mine in the midst of massive cultural upheavals that there's, there's literally too many to name. that I haven't heard a peep about it. Not a peep, not a word about it. And there's plenty of words going back and forth. There's plenty of venom in public discourse. There's plenty of people slinging mud and pointing fingers and laying blame. And, and I get upset that it's the loud, arrogant, ignorant fools that have syndicated talk shows or whatever, they're the ones that are getting heard 
I, I just can't believe that, that God hasn't given any wisdom to his people. I don't, I don't think our silence serves to teach us how to have a credible witness, how to make sense of a world that's in the midst of losing its gosh darn mind. And how to show Christ's likeness to people in a culture that's rejected the son and acting like the owner is dead. Jesus is not, he's not just launching invectives at people. You know that, right? He's there. And he's, this is where the second part comes in. He's not just, it's not just words. We're in a culture where talk is super cheap. Everyone's got words. Everyone's got rhetoric. Everyone's got a blog, a podcast, a YouTube channel. Everyone's got words. What Jesus is putting on display is he's there and he's forming and shaping a community of people that he calls to himself. And he says, I want you to embody something different. He's not just launching verbal assaults on the cultural elites. He's not just going on to a tirade about the sins of his culture. He's actively pouring into a community to be distinct, to provide a credible alternative. That's where the second part comes in. The fact that Jesus says, the kingdom of God is given to a people bearing its fruits. I don't, wanna, I don't want you to think that I'm up here, that I, my hope is that we're going to turn the culture around or cultural renewal or whatever. That's fine. That's a, that would be a great thing. And we should all pray for that. But that is not my hope. The kingdom of God is given to a people, and it's not the American people. The kingdom of God is not given to a nation, but it's given to people of many nations. The kingdom is given to the church. And I know that there's wide-ranging and impassioned debates about what the church should be. What should we be about? How, how does the church reach the culture? And, and I, honest to God, do not have the wisdom to answer those questions. I do not know. I'm trying to figure that out too. But I will say this. I, I can speak to that dilemma with this. Is that I know that the church is not yet all that God has called her to be. Because I'm not. And I'll bet the bank that you're not either. Right? God has called us to be his people, to embody the fruits of the Holy Spirit, to live in a way that's distinct from the world. And I know that I'm not 100%. I'm not perfect. You know? And so it it's only makes sense that when we come together as the church to bear witness to the goodness of God, that it would be less than, maybe less than perfect. So here's where we're at. We have the opportunity, even the responsibility, to be a rare place 
where our actions match what we say, where our character matches our words. This is the importance of bearing fruit. It's not only, not only does it make the gospel story compelling, I would say it's the only way to make it credible. When those who are telling the story are also embodying the story being told, like Jesus, that we we get the opportunity, by God's grace, to provide a credible alternative. I'm going to give you a few examples. And I'm, I'm asking you all to spare pitchforks. Jeannie was up here maybe a month ago talking about her work and the work that's going on um, fighting against human trafficking, which is just, that's a terrible that's an outrage. Anytime that people say, I could never believe that God would ever experience anger or wrath, do you not know that women and men are violently abused and ex- exploited against their will and that these men are, think it's boosting to their ego? They think they're powerful. How could, you, how could God not be enraged? The church, we, we gather around, we celebrate that. We throw our support behind that. But the fact of the matter is, if dudes in the church are looking at pornography, which is one of the leading causes of human trafficking, then what does it matter what we say? If we can't provide credible alternatives, man, and why would we not talk about it? You know, I was talking to a sister, um, not my sister in the faith, and we're talking about gender. We're talking about gender roles and what does it mean to be a follower of Christ, male and female, and how to provide a, a robust understanding of that. And I, I mean, I was frustrated because I'm like, I don't, I don't know how to answer that question. And part of that frustration is we are past the stage of questioning traditional gender roles or even understandings of gender. We're in a culture that is actively deconstructing gender and eradicating it. And I don't think it, it doesn't do to, to sling mud and to, and to vilify people. If we don't have anything any compelling alternative. I need to understand that. I got sons and daughters. I want to know. I, mean, I, didn't grow, I, I didn't go to seminary, and I shouldn't, shouldn't have to. We shouldn't need anything other than, than the kingdom, the vineyard, and the fruit that God is bearing in the midst of his church. We live in a culture where the only constraint to legitimate sexual exploration is consent. And we know, we know, and we hear that even that is routinely violated. And you know what happens anytime you have a revolution 
even a sexual revolution is you get refugees. You get people that are, are burned, that are wrecked by that, that live in the wreckage of that, and they're looking for refuge. And if the church can embody an alternative to, to a culture that's trying to seek out this transcendent fulfillment in something that was never meant to give you that. And so it bothers me personally when there's dudes in the church that are sleeping around. We have a culture that has numerous orphans, people who don't know their pops, people who never met their parents, that, that don't even know what family means. And if, if we can't address that within the body in a gracious way, but address it nonetheless and say, man, we don't want you shacking up with this woman. We want you to stand up before the church and say, this is my wife so that we can hold you accountable for how you treat her and your kids because we care about you. I guess what I'm trying to get across is this. I feel like one of the recurring tensions that you find in Scripture is to live in tension with the world that, that Jesus loves, that he made, that he died, he bled for to reconcile and in a world where people just be rejecting him, you know? And that, the, that we would be a people formed by that type of love. The love of the Son for the world and against the world. And that we, wouldn't, we would be patient and long-suffering, you know, as we're rejected. You know, I just don't, I mean... The world knows. They know what Christians believe. We don't need to hide it. We don't need to act like it's not, we don't really, I don't know. I just don't, I don't think timidness, timidness, I guess. I don't think being ashamed to talk about these difficult things, I just don't think it serves us. Um, so honestly, I, I, I don't know. I don't have a, a huge list of applications, but I just, I mean, there he is, Christ, the lover of our souls, the one who, who died for the world. That's how, he, that's, how he, that's how he, God sent him to the world, you know? And so when we continue to worship, when we take communion, when we take the Lord's Supper, that's a reminder. That's a reminder of how much it costs our God to demonstrate his love, his love for a people who reject him. Because we were all there. We were all there. And to be not just reminded of that, but to feed on that and be nourished by that type of costly love. So let's pray, and we'll take communion together, and we'll continue to sing God's praises.
God, we know we know you, and that's only by your grace. We see you, Lord, and we're compelled and we're drawn to you and we're captivated by your goodness, God. But the world draws us too. And we feel timid. We feel afraid. We lack boldness. God, we pray that you would give us boldness to speak with grace and with clarity concerning your kingdom, your character, your gospel. And we also pray, God, that you, in our midst, through this body, we pray that you would bear fruit in abundance, not so that we could look down our noses at the world, but so that the world would see and say there is something to this people. And I want that. I want that, that you would draw a people to you. You would use your church for your glory. This we ask through Christ our Lord. Thank you.